You're listening to Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about landmark cases in America. This is Episode 3 of Kuhn v. Walden, a focus on the other side. What tipped me off was the news article. Remember the news article? Is that the one where he said, I'm the Albert Pujols of... I'm the Albert Pujols of medicine. I get paid what the market will bear. (laughs) And so a person who's taken an oath to advocate for the patient, right, and to do no harm to the patient, has agreed for money to step in and look the other way and say, well, I think everything he did was okay. Man, that just did not sit well with me. I want to figure out who the hell you are, right? Because it takes a certain type of person to agree to do that stuff. That was plaintiff's attorney Johnny Simon recalling a news article he uncovered about a doctor in this case who was defending another doctor accused of overprescribing opioids. You've already heard the depositions of the victim, Brian Kuhn, and his wife, Michelle, and testimony from a different physician who claimed Brian's doctor, Dr. Henry Walden, had, quote, prescribed excessive and then colossal doses of opioid analgesics, which resulted in chronic intoxication. In layman's terms, that means Brian's doctor turned him into an addict. Prescribing over 37,000 high-dose opioid pills over four years for back pain may sound indefensible. But you're about to hear from two physicians hired by the defense to claim that they didn't see anything wrong with that. The defense team brought two experts to defend Dr. Walden. Attorney Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon of the Simon Law Firm knew there were some major issues to address in their depositions. Was Brian responsible for his addiction? Did Dr. Walden breach the standard of care? And did Brian deserve damages? But were there other issues they hadn't thought of that might influence the jury? Here's attorney Tim Cronin. One of the reasons we knew what might be a concern for us and things we had to address is by this time we'd done some online focus groups, which are really a tremendous tool for for trial lawyers to use. Sometimes you can use them before your case starts to try to figure out the best way to develop your evidence or in the middle of the case or before trial to try to figure out, you know, how people with fresh set of eyes are looking at it and figure out some issues you need to address, either when you're picking the jury or just when you're giving arguments and examining witnesses. Tim and Johnny hired a professional focus group firm to determine which arguments increase the odds of a jury deciding in their favor. Over 200 demographically diverse people listened to Brian Kuhn's story, with all the names changed, of course. Tim and Johnny wanted insights on three key tactical issues. Would the jury be more inclined to rule in Brian's favor if he accepted some responsibility for his addiction? Did a certain demographic group appear to be more sympathetic to Brian's story? And how much money should Tim and Johnny ask for in compensation and punitive damages for Brian and Michelle? What was this case really worth? The focus groups revealed powerful information. Tim and Johnny learned that 90% of people who believed addiction is a medical condition and not a moral failing decided in favor of Brian. So instead of walking into the courtroom blind, Tim and Johnny could ask this specific question of potential jurors during jury selection or voir dire 
and try to seat jurors who agreed with that statement, increasing their chances of a favorable verdict. The focus group also revealed that 91% of the jurors thought the prescribing doctor was negligent. To Tim and Johnny's surprise, the focus group company noted that this case was one of the strongest cases on liability they had seen in over a decade of jury research. 91% support for liability was overwhelming. And the damages these mock jurors were willing to award were not tens of thousands of dollars, but went well into the millions. Tim and Johnny now realized this case could be massive and had the potential to change prescribing practices across America. Tim and Johnny prepared to face the defense experts. So we were on the attack, which is what we do best. And so, Tim, how many experts did they have? They had two experts that had to get produced for a depot right at that time, and we'd been doing nothing but researching and finding everything we could to talk about how, I mean, in this environment, to be doing what happened to, to Brian is crazy. You know, my experience was in a medical malpractice case, and in almost any case, you can find somebody who you can pay to say just about anything. But I did agree that if they found somebody, they were going to have a monumental task ahead of them when they were confronted with what the evidence was and what the literature was. On the other side, still, they didn't respond to They still didn't seem to understand the magnitude of the case even after our experts' depot. So that's when we kind of decided to turn the heat up in the case with their experts. We no longer had any risk. It was just attacking, you know, their experts and their people. And right about that time is when we started seeing national headlines about the opioid epidemic almost every day. It kind of lined up perfectly. In light of the fact that opioid overdoses were finally making headlines, you might think it would be difficult to find a physician willing to testify that 37,000 opioid pills over four years was appropriate treatment. But this happens all the time in MedMal cases. The defense can always find someone willing to support their side of the story. Johnny found quite a bit of dirt on the first defense expert, Dr. Anthony Guarino. His testimony provides a glimpse into the way doctors protect each other in court and make a lot of money doing it. Their first expert was a pain management doctor, Dr. Marino, who was local here in St. Louis. Johnny, I'd say we prepared for this depot more than we'd ever prepared for any depot before. I think I would agree with that. It's generally my experience that the better case you have, like I thought we had in the Kuhn case, the more a defendant is going to turn to someone, the typical expert witness that I think, you know, the lay members of our community and, and the jury think of as a hired gun. And the more you have a hired gun as an expert, someone who's not going to give you an objective evaluation of the case, but going to say what the lawyer wants them to say, generally the more dirt there is out there because those people are out for hire. Using an expert that testifies for a living is a calculated risk that can backfire if the other side finds good dirt. And Johnny Simon did. You win your case by destroying their experts, but you destroy their expert not just by thinking, but you got to do a little bit of manual labor digging through to find stuff to contradict what he's saying. He knows more about medicine than I'll ever know, but I know more about this stuff than he'll ever know, right? And because he had a paper trail, you know, years and years and years long, he'd been doing this for 10 years, he's not going to prevent me from finding stuff. I can find anything that I want in the world with the power of the internet. And a person who's taken an oath to advocate for the patient, right, and to do no harm to the patient, has agreed for money to step in and look the other way and say, 
well, I think everything he did was okay. Man, that just did not sit well with me. And I, I was kind of really, really like, I want to figure out who the hell you are, right? Because it takes a certain type of person to agree to do that stuff. You know what? If you want to throw the gloves, you want to get in the ring, you're going to take some punches. You get in the ring, you, you put at issue every, everything that you've ever said under oath, right? You know, I really wanted to find it. And just digging in, talking to people. Who is this guy? Dr. Guarino at first blush was extremely well qualified in pain management at a renowned institution. You did a little bit of digging, and what'd you find? I found that there was a lot more to Dr. Guarino than a title <laughs> and a, you know, a professorship at Washington University. I found that he was a prolific testifier, so much so that I don't know how he could have carried on a clinical practice. So that really kind of triggered me to dig because there was a lot out there. I found that this was a, a doctor who had testified under oath dozens of times. Oh, I think it was more than dozens of times. I, I mean, dozens and dozens <laughs> yeah. and dozens of times. Right. Cases involving opioids. So, you know, what better way you want to see what someone's going to say, uh, you know, in your deposition, in your case, look at what he said in other cases. What were some of the most damaging things you found? I mean, first was in a prior deposition, I think it was here in Missouri, where he testified that 200 morphine equivalents was a large dose. So I'm thinking to myself, we got 1,500 here on average for a year. He's got 200 one time as a large dose. That's crazy. The second and most significant thing was from his CV to his clinical activities and, you know, extracurricular, if that's what you want to call them, he was almost in cahoots almost quite literally with pharmaceutical companies that push opioids and manufacture opioids, Purdue Pharma, Insys, names that we now know and are in the headlines even more so today. They've been prosecuted by the federal government, indictments of their executives. He is the man going and giving talks at their on their behalf, at dinners, at nice restaurants, all of this stuff. What tipped me off was the news article. Remember the news article? Is that the one where he said, I'm the Albert Pujols of... I'm the Albert Pujols of medicine. I get paid what the market will bear. (laughs) Whoa, red flag. Yeah, I remember that. He was the number one paid doctor by pharmaceutical companies in the state of Missouri for, for quite a few years, or at least one or two years. So I took the material that Johnny had kind of insanely gathered and gone through. It was a bit over the top, but all worth it. Combed through it for about a week myself, putting together an outline and two binders with the best material Johnny gathered. I think we had like like 56 exhibits to the depot. So we took the best material and then took his depot for probably seven hours. Easy. Remember, this, there was a storm. I remember it was yeah, there was a storm late. in the conference room and a storm outside. It was pretty clear from the beginning of the deposition that Dr. Guarino was going to be defensive and that he'd done this before. His answers were very short, yes, no, or a very vague, generally, but not always, or it's a judgment call. So Tim had to be very specific in his questions. He started with the first topic on his checklist. Did Dr. Walden violate the standard of care? This part's kind of a standard thing we try to do. Admissions, we try to get in all med mal cases to take away some typical defense arguments. Can a doctor follow their own judgment and fall below the standard of care? That the core of the Hippocratic Oath is for a doctor to do no harm. That a doctor must never needlessly endanger their patients. And these are all things that their expert agreed with. That physicians must make judgment decisions to choose the safest course of treatment. 
the next section was to try to take away really one of the main defenses that we figured out they had from our focus group that the people who were finding against us were getting hung up on, which was some people feel that a patient is just as much or more responsible for their own health care and decisions more so than the doctor is. So that it was Brian's responsibility more than the doctors really. And so that was something we needed to address with their experts. Listen to these clips of Tim and Dr. Guarino from the actual deposition recordings. It's not the patient's responsibility to make sure his physician is meeting the standard of care, correct? I agree. Patients should be able to trust and rely upon their physicians. Do you agree with that? Yes. Tim moved on to some of the dirt that would discredit Dr. Guarino. He started by pointing out that even though the doctor was testifying for the defense in this case, he had testified in previous cases against prescribing behavior just like this. We found out that one of their experts was testifying for a plaintiff in an opioid case saying all the stuff we were saying. Saying all the stuff we're saying, I'm like, dude, you know what? Is there anything you won't take money to say? I mean, right. it's just a matter of who's paying you. Like, You think this is a game. That's kind of how I felt. I was like... You know, you think this is a game. You think you come in here, you get paid $2,500 an hour or whatever the hell his rate was. You get to answer some softball questions about, oh, you're a doctor and, you know, you think it's all okay. Okay, I guess we'll just go home and dismiss the case. That's not going to happen here. Not with this firm, right? Not with these lawyers. It's not going to happen. And we didn't yell at him or scream at him. We just asked really tough questions. Well, I made him answer them. Yeah. Instead of just avoiding the question. Tim made Dr. Guarino admit the scope of the opioid problem and that primary care physicians like Dr. Walden, who were writing millions of opioid prescriptions, were part of the problem. Two million people in the United States suffer from substance use disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers. That was an admission that he made. Physicians are and were calling it the worst man-made epidemic in the history of modern medicine. And Dr. Guarino admitted all of this. Regular internal medicine doctors, like ours in this case, were prescribing opiates while lacking the requisite knowledge to know what they're doing. Their own expert said that. The next thing we wanted to do with the doctor, before we hit him with all the dirt that Johnny had dug up on him and made him angry, we wanted to see what kind of admissions we could get and agreements we could get from him about the facts of our case. So Dr. Guarino agreed that in 2008, Dr. Walden placed Brian right off the bat on long-term standing doses of chronic narcotic opioid pain medication of an unfixed duration. That was a quote, unfixed duration. Between 2008 and 2012, it was just bigger and bigger doses of opiates, and there are vastly more prescriptions than there are actual visits. Again, the defendant had prescribed the plaintiff over 37,000 Schedule II narcotic pills over four years for lower back pain, escalating to over 1,500 morphine equivalent dose a day, 40 pills per day of opioids. And I mean, we're not talking about small dose pills, we're talking about 80 milligram pills. And it was like for over 300 Oxycontin in one prescription. Along with a bottle of like 300 immediate release oxycodone. Like at the same time, it was like 600 pills he walked out with. But all that was fine with Dr. Guarino. Yeah. In fact, Dr. Guarino testified that Dr. Walden met his treatment objective for Brian, which was not to fix his back pain, but to keep him at work at any cost. Here's another clip from the deposition. Don't you think Dr. Walden should have continued using a multifaceted approach, including prescribing exercises, physical therapy, something? 
it's a judgment decision. Uh, Mr. Kuhn wanted to work at a heavy demand job, and uh, the records reflect that he was able to do so while obtaining opioids to control his pain. And so uh, the treatment objective was met, and um, as long as the objectives were met and there were no uh, problems related to the medicine, um, Dr. Walden continued in the vein that he did. And he said it was totally okay for Brian to go for months without monitoring. Dr. Walden made a decision you know, when to refill medicines. And uh, it is common practice that uh, individuals who are on um, opioid therapy long term uh, may not necessarily need visits every time a prescription is written. Johnny's research revealed that Dr. Guarino had written a book about managing back pain. His advice in the book was the opposite of what he claimed in his deposition. He wrote that most primary care physicians are not sufficiently trained to manage chronic low back pain, although some don't realize it or admit it. Dr. Walden, as everyone knows, was a primary care doctor. He wrote that when prescribing pain-relieving pain medications, a doctor should always start with the lowest strength and opioids should be the last option, that class two opioids have the highest risk of addiction, and that patients who are given narcotics must be monitored to make sure they take the medications as prescribed. In other words, all things that we were saying and our expert was saying were mirrored in a book that he wrote uh, outside the litigation context yeah. was he wasn't being paid to give testimony. And he said managing low back pain requires a multi-pronged approach, which is not what happened for Mr. Kuhn. He went on in the book to talk about how many doctors are apprehensive about prescribing narcotics for people with chronic pain because they may believe the myth that it could turn the patient into an addict. So he thought it was a myth that narcotic opiates can turn people into addicts, which I don't, which I don't think painted him in a very positive light for the jury. Here's another thing that wasn't going to sit well with the jury. Tim pointed out that Dr. Guarino had testified for the other side in a case where a doctor did exactly what Dr. Walden did, and Dr. Guarino called him negligent. The defense attorney jumped in to object, but Dr. Guarino had to answer. In this Barrett case, you testified that the defendant inadequately assessed the plaintiff because he did not appreciate the significance of his substance abuse and continued giving him a medication that could potentially kill him. Is that basically your opinion in the case? Yes. So do you agree that if a doctor does not appreciate the significance of a patient's substance abuse and continues giving him opiates, he is negligent? Depends on... Big question without sufficient facts. So to that there. It depends on the situation. It depends on the factors involved. Dr. Guarino managed not to admit that he contradicted himself. Barely. Here was my favorite thing. He comes up with this concept of pseudo-addiction. And he didn't come up with it, but he constantly referenced in depots and articles. And it basically is the concept that some patients who are on opioids chronically exhibit signs of addiction to opiates and engage in drug-seeking behaviors that mimic, mimic addiction. Why, says the man who takes tens of thousands of dollars from pharmaceutical companies that make opioids, because they're not getting enough opioids. Right. In other words, it's not addiction. They're exhibiting signs of addiction. It really just means you need to give them more opioids. Yeah, just give them more. Uh, and they'll, they'll Which stop, is insane. Which is crazy. Listen carefully to how Dr. Guarino confidently justifies prescriptions of 1,500 morphine equivalents a day. 
That's 15 times the recommended dosage. And pharmacies refusing to fill Brian's massive prescriptions, calling it pseudo-addiction. Aren't all those things we just discussed clear signs of addiction? They are a suggestion. It does not uh, make it the uh, diagnosis. Didn't Dr. Walden know that Brian was misusing his pills? That is one of the ways one could interpret the information. You think Dr. Walden just didn't want to deal with the problem? No, I disagree. I think Dr. Walden was concerned for Mr. Kuhn. I believe he, uh, he saw pseudo-addiction, that he wasn't getting enough relief because he was not getting enough medicines, and he continually increased his medicines in order to control the pain. And the, the manifestation of success of the therapy that Dr. Walden was, was getting is that uh, Mr. Kuhn was able to maintain his employment, whereas uh, if this therapy was not provided, it would be very unlikely that he uh, uh, would have been able to maintain employment. Johnny found articles from universities discrediting the concept of pseudo-addiction. Apparently, this was one of Dr. Guarino's standard testifying tactics to avoid pinning blame on physicians or pharmaceutical companies. So here is the point where we really hit him with the hammer we had, and that was the, his conflicts of interest with relationships to pharmaceutical companies. We saved the best for last because we knew once we confronted him with it, he'd become combative and not agree with anything else the rest of the depot. And kind of to set the stage for that, you had found the conflicts of interest policy for the university he worked for about relationships with pharmaceutical companies. And expert testimony work. And extra testimony work which, you know, he's bound by this policy of his employer. It said physicians should never allow contact from pharmaceutical representatives to unduly influence their medical decision-making. That clearly had happened. And it said physicians are never to accept meals, event tickets, golf outings, gifts, travel, or any free goods or services from pharma companies. And he had clearly done that. But here were my favorite admissions, which when he said them, you know, you're in the deposition, you want to have your poker face on, but when he said them, I was floored that someone would freely admit to this and, you know, think and have a perception that he's being an objective expert in, in a case. He said, compared to other pain physicians, he admitted that he would call himself a, quote, prominent prescriber of opioids. And this was from that one of those past depots we got it in. So here he is coming into a case trying to convince a jury that a doctor's prescribing practices or A-OK -okay within the standard of care, and he's being told and paid by pharma companies hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and admits that he's been told that, hey, man, you're one of our you know top prescribers. Yeah. Tim used that fact to reinforce that Dr. Guarino was batting for Big Pharma's team. Compared to other pain management physicians in the area, you would you would describe yourself as a prominent prescriber of opioids, correct? I think that's reasonable. Uh, even the pharmaceutical companies that you market products for have told you that you are a significant opioid prescriber. I've heard that. Dr. Guarino seemed proud of the fact that he had deep professional relationships with pharmaceutical companies. They had even endorsed him. Tim and Johnny hoped that would not sound good to the jury. 
I mean, he's admitting the pharma companies are saying he's even one of their top guys. He'd been on six physician advisory boards for opioid manufacturers. Those are paid positions, making on average five to $10,000 a year, dating back about 10 years, and he, he was on six of them. In addition, and this is where most of the money came from, he'd gotten paid by pharmaceutical companies, dating back to the beginning of what caused this epidemic, to go around and give lectures and talks specifically about prescribing opioids. He got paid per talk, and he'd done thousands of those. And what he would do is he'd highlight, first of all, he'd say it's perfectly safe, they're not addictive, you should prescribe opioids for chronic pain. And he would highlight the medication marketed by the company paying him for the talk. What sells the medicine faster than having someone at a prominent university and a prominent professorship at the head of their field using the drugs or marketing the drugs? Right. They were giving kickbacks directly to the prescribing doctors. Paying doctors, I mean, they did pay Dr. Garino. Purdue invented Oxycontin which was the first delayed release opioid. And they paid him to give presentations to other doctors about prescribing Oxycontin. And Guarino was one of the first ones on board to do it. I mean, that means he was a key player in causing this epidemic. At his peak, Dr. Reno admitted he was earning about $250,000 a year to give talks marketing opioids for pharmaceutical companies. He made millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies helping them to market opioids all over the country. Johnny's research had also revealed that Dr. Guarino made money not only by promoting opioids, but by testifying about them too. A lot of money. Before he even gave his deposition, he'd already billed $32,000 in the case. He charged $2,000 an hour for the deposition because we wanted to videotape it. So since the depo was seven hours, he charged about $14,000 for his deposition in seven hours. At trial, he charged a flat rate of $10,000 per day. So in total, he was going to make about $60,000 from testifying in this case. I mean, if that's not an incentive to say what the person who hired you wanted, I don't know what is. Prior litigation work, Johnny, didn't he say he'd served as an expert witness just a ton of times over like 15 years? About how many cases per year? Yeah, he said about 10 cases per year. I'm sure it's much more than that. He admitted he'd made well over a million dollars for litigation consulting. It was probably closer to $5 million if you do the math. But, of course, he was kind of cagey about it. He was on at least three different expert service directories marketing himself for expert work in lawsuits. Kuhn v. Walden was a classic case of expert against expert. Tim and Johnny's distinguished physician from Yale, who said Brian's brain was marinating in opioids, and a doctor who took millions from Big Pharma and said that was just fine. The jury was only going to believe one of them, and discrediting Dr. Guarino's character would help convince the jury that Brian's expert was more credible. Dr. Guarino had been effectively disarmed by Tim and Johnny's research and preparation, But Johnny found one more case that featured Dr. Guarino's paid testimony, and Tim just had to bring it up. So the last thing we found about Dr. Guarino, I think, was even more devastating. And it was in 2008, the same year that Brian Kuhn first started getting prescribed opioids. Their expert, Dr. Guarino, had written an opinion report in a criminal overprescription case being brought by the U.S. government against another Missouri physician. That doctor was charged with writing illegitimate pain pill prescriptions to patients who were on Medicaid and thus committing Medicaid fraud. Uh, the guy's nicknames were the Candyman and Dr. Feelgood. And 
by 2008, coroners in Missouri had linked him to 50 overdose deaths, just this one doctor. And Dr. Gorino, the defense expert in our Kuhn case, had also given opinions in that criminal case where that other doctor had caused 50 overdose deaths. And Dr. Gorino thought his prescribing practices were perfectly acceptable. In Dr. Gorino's opinion, that doctor in his prescribing of opioids met the appropriate standard of care. Throughout Tim's persistent focus on Dr. Guarino's contradictions, pharma payments, and evasive testifying tactics, Dr. Guarino continued to defend Dr. Walden. The defense was going to refute everything else and make the jury focus on Dr. Guarino's sworn opinion that was summed up in this comment. Mr. Kuhn was not addicted, so I would say he was opioid dependent. And so Dr. Walden was reasonable in his care in providing opioids to treat the pain that Mr. Kuhn had reported. Dr. Guarino was the first defense expert to attack, and Tim and Johnny were feeling pretty confident. But the next defense expert's deposition offered an opportunity to address a hole in their case. They did not have an expert to testify that Brian was not responsible for his addiction and that he'd suffered and deserved damages, points the focus group had indicated must be proven to win the case. On May 17, 2016, Tim deposed defense witness Dr. Eric William Gunderson. Now, this doctor, Johnny, I thought he was actually a pretty good guy. He seemed like a really honest guy. If I recall, he hadn't testified very much. I don't know if he'd ever testified before. And he specialized in addiction medicine. He dedicated his life to treating opioid addiction and substance abuse. Once we figured out what the guy did for a living, and Johnny did some more expert digging, we decided to try to turn him into our own damages witness. So we were able to use that to fill a hole in our case for, I think, to help the jury understand just because somebody doesn't have a bunch of medical bills or lost wages doesn't mean they don't have damages. And so that was our strategy going into this depot. But we really spent most of our time with this defense expert talking about the horrors of addiction because we didn't have our own expert to address that. We, we probably should have, but we, we didn't think of it when we found and disclosed experts. I don't think I knew what an addictionologist I don't, was. I never heard of one. I mean, we had our case. We had our liability case that was a good case, and we had a psychologist who'd examined him and said he became addicted, and we had our client and his wife testifying about what happened to him. But it really helped fill a hole to have a medical doctor who treats addiction saying, this is what happens with addiction, and it is uncontrollable. And it is a problem and hurts people. And this doctor explained that for a long time in our country, our society's response to drug abuse has been to assume that people addicted to drugs are just morally flawed and that they're lacking in willpower, which he explained was not true. And, and nobody on the jury should think of it that way. Addiction is a complex problem. An individual's willpower is compromised. He explained it is a brain disease, not a moral or mental weakness, but a chronic medical condition that results from changes in the brain. And he explained to the jury exactly that an addiction alters the circuits in your brain, including those responsible for mood, behavior control, judgment, decision-making, learning, and memory. We knew that this was true about addiction, specifically with opioids, but to get their own expert on the stand to say this just killed one of their best defenses, which was blame Mr. Kuhn. So Tim asked Dr. Gunderson, what happens to a person's life when they develop opioid addiction? Using exact quotes from Michelle Kuhn's testimony about Brian's behavior. 
In this clip from the actual deposition recording, notice that the defense attorney is objecting again. It's about all he can do against Tim's line of questioning. Do you see patients with opioid use disorders that struggle to focus on anything other than the pills, hitting the pills, taking the pills, refilling the pills? Yes. Can opioid addictions or use disorders strip away a person's ability to feel emotions like joy, love, happiness, or to interact with others? Subject to the vagueness. Uh, having an opioid use disorder can impair an individual's ability to experience uh, joy, happy, happiness, and uh, pleasure. As an addictionologist specializing in opioid addiction, Dr. Gunderson was highly qualified to discuss the addictive properties of prescription opioids. Tim used that to his advantage. We didn't want the jury thinking that there was this massive difference between prescription opioids by doctors and street heroin. Because there isn't. There isn't. And I didn't really realize that before we worked on this case. We wanted the jury to associate prescription opioids with heroin because they should be associated. And Dr. Gunderson, the addictionologist, explained, you know, whether it's opioids or opiates, they bind to the receptors in the brain generally the same way and have the same effect. In other words, he said, and he admitted at trial, that oxycodone binds to the receptors in the brain generally the same way that heroin does. Which really, you know, I think put it in perspective to people, for people, at least that was what we were hoping it would do, is you got to think of these things as what they are. They're legal heroin pills that can only get dispensed by doctors. Mm -hmm. Unless you buy them on the street illegally the same way you buy heroin. So we went further. He admitted opioids are highly addictive narcotics. He admitted they, they can be and often are dangerous. So we talked to him about the opioid epidemic. He admitted we were in the midst of one. He had publicly written that it is a major public health problem. And up until this point, we really hadn't had a witness say any of this stuff. No, Guarino had given some of the statistics, but relating it to being caused by prescriptions by doctors, we really hadn't had yet. And Dr. Gunderson helped us do that. And so, and that wasn't, you know, by chance, that was a strategic choice because that was our frame. And he allowed us to kind of, you know, I'm not a, a big construction person, but we put the four posts together. I mean, he was the final nails. And Dr. Gunderson admitted that doctors like Dr. Walden were a big part of the problem. Would you agree with me, doctor, that one of the main comp contributions to this epidemic is regular primary care physicians prescribing large quantities of opioids when they don't really know enough about them? Object to the vagueness, specific to that, doctor. Yeah. It's not just about the, the large quantity, but it's about um, any chronic prescribing for any prescribing of opioids. Tim had more on his checklist for this witness. Next, we wanted to take away or chip away at their defense that Brian needed increasing doses because patients develop tolerance and Brian's pain was getting worse. And this really was one of their main liability defenses, Johnny, I think, is, look, he had real pain, it was getting worse over time, and that's why his doses were bigger, and naturally, as a matter of fact, these opioids, as you mentioned earlier, you develop tolerance. If you're on them a long time, you have to get higher doses. But I really think the the key corollary with that is, yes, you build up a tolerance to the analgesic effect. But not the side effects. But not the 
risks of the side effects of, you know, respiratory distress and overdose. You don't right. build up a tolerance to that. Yeah, you become more sensitive to pain and therefore you feel the need for more, you know, narcotics when really the problem is the medicine itself. Dr. Gunderson established for us that that is a real medical condition that happens to some people that are on long-term opioids. They become more sensitive to pain. And then most importantly, when asked about Brian specifically, he testified that he thought that's likely what happened to Brian, which just, I thought, hurt badly the defendant's case. Johnny's research had uncovered some of Dr. Gunderson's writings that supported Tim and Johnny's claims. So that went into the record, too. Again, doing your homework, you know, on experts and digging dirt and figuring out, you know, because believe it or not, people will say things in litigation that they will not say outside of litigation. I know that's really hard for everyone to believe, but he had written uh, or was signatory to a letter that an organization called the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing or PROP. They're a group that know, works for more responsible opioid prescribing practices. And it, and it was a letter to the FDA back in 2012. Which this, you know, expert, Dr. Gunderson, had signed. He wrote that misperceptions by clinicians lead to overprescribing and high-dose prescribing of opioids. He wrote that. He, or the letter, and as part of the organization, it proposed exactly what we were saying the entire case. He wanted the FDA to put on their label a limit of 90 to 100 milligrams a day of morphine and never go for more than 90 days except for cancer patients, right? He's proposing these limitations. The maximum doses and, and time limitations that we've been saying from day one. So, you know, we have a guy who specializes in treating opioid addiction, explaining how it devastates your life and affects all of your family around you, creates distance, uh, emotional distance, and permanent emotional scars. And then we have a doctor saying that Brian's opioid use caused this strain in his relationship with his wife and his daughter. Sometimes opioid addicts feel like there's no way out and it caused Brian or contributed to cause suicidal thoughts in him, that he suffered depression, that he suffered, uh, that it was caused and exacerbated by his opioid use, that he developed an opioid use disorder. I mean, these these are just gold that, that we got from an opposing expert who's agreeing with everything that our expert who'd, who'd met with Brian and examined him had said. And he agreed ultimately the, at some point, while Dr. Walden was still prescribing opioids, the pros of continuing them no longer outweighed the risks. So I think this expert, because of research we'd done, essentially seriously helped prove our liability case. And then something that the other side didn't even anticipate getting us getting into, agreed with just about everything our damages expert said, and which is something you always need to think about. If somebody, if somebody hires an expert, think about not just how you're going to attack what the other side wants them to say, but what else you can get from them to help your case that they didn't anticipate you asking because they're not going to be prepped on it. But if we hadn't done the research, we wouldn't have known all the stuff he'd be willing to say and what he had written. So just another example of how you need to, you got to take depositions very seriously, especially experts. The more time you spend preparing for them, generally the better they're going to go and you can, you can just get gold out of them. The defense may have felt a little nervous after these two depots because they added a few more witnesses right before trial. And this time, they weren't doctors. Juries 
I think approach whatever the person who's asking for money says with a little bit of caution. I mean, they have an incentive to say things were really bad because they're trying to get a significant amount of money. And then I think any juror takes a lot of things that a paid expert says that supports that that party's case with a grain of salt because they're being paid for their testimony. But we didn't have anyone else other than the people asking for money giving examples of how the plaintiff's lives had changed. And luckily, the defense decided to take several of our clients' family members' depots shortly before trial and Brian's supervisor's depots. And at first, this concerned us a little bit. We didn't know what these people were going to say, but I think it ended up helping prove our damages case almost better than anything else had. I really think it was just that they thought that our clients were making this up. Yeah, they did not believe that there was really a problem, and they thought they were going to get family members under oath and supervisors for the city under oath. Brian's supervisors for the city that had known him for a couple decades to say, I don't know what they're talking about. He was fine, and that that's, that's not quite how it played out. So... Our case on damages was that Brian was pushed, you know, deep into an opioid addiction, becoming a shadow of his former self. He became the functional equivalent of a zombie. Uh, His brain was literally marinating in narcotic analgesics, as our expert Dr. Jennison had uh, so eloquently put it. They made a huge deal about how that couldn't be true because Brian continued to do his job. He kept going to work. How could he be in such a bad drug addiction state like a zombie if he's going to work in a public job? And so his foreman put it pretty well, uh, put it pretty simply. He said, yeah, I knew Brian had a pain problem and, you know, we helped cover for him. Because we liked him. We liked him. He's a good guy. We gave him simpler tasks, gave him simpler things to do. But Brian's performance reviews that had been glowing before 2008 dropped dramatically. You know, he, he said you could see a steady decline starting in 2008 and progressing through 2012. They went from consistently, you know, outstanding with compliments from citizens, showering Brian, uh, Mr. Kuhn with how helpful he was, to all satisfactory and sufficient. You know, I think the biggest thing was Mr. Kuhn's foreman took him off the road. They wouldn't let him drive a city truck anymore for fear someone would get hurt, which, said, I, which I thought was a perfect example. He said, I saw him, I I knew he was taking the pills, we knew about him, and I said, no way I'm letting that man get behind the wheel of a truck, which is something Dr. Walden never did. Yeah. Then the defense deposed their final witnesses, Brian's in-laws and his mom and dad. They took the depositions of Brian's parents, and we ended up just, you know, playing or reading these depositions to the trial. We didn't didn't make the family come in and, and, and testify at trial, but... Brian's own parents essentially said they had no desire to see their son during the time period he was on the pills. They knew something was wrong. They tried but couldn't do anything to help. So they just didn't want to be around their own son anymore. Which, I mean, that takes something for a parent to say that. And you could tell there was love there, but they just, they couldn't bear to see it. And so they they didn't want to be around it. And again, these are things that I think in hindsight, you know, this is addiction. This is the real effect. It's difficult to love an addict, to love, you know, someone who has an opioid use disorder. It's difficult to be around them because you don't want to see that. They took some of Brian's wife's family's depositions, who basically testified similar to what Brian and Michelle had said, that Brian was basically a zombie who would show up to family events with Michelle and sit there and stare off into days. Like, they couldn't talk to him. Nothing like he used to be, engaging and kind and happy. With these final depositions, the discovery phase was complete. 
You might think after hearing Tim attack these defense witnesses that a verdict for Brian was a slam dunk. How could anyone decide otherwise? Tim and Johnny had testimony from their witness, Dr. Jennison, to prove their three pillars, that Dr. Walden violated the standard of care, that he was negligent, he hurt Brian, and Brian therefore deserved compensation. And Tim had seriously discredited most of the defense witnesses to cast doubt on their opposing opinions. But the defense still had solid positions. Brian asked for every one of these pills. He was still alive, off drugs and working, even though he and Michelle's marriage was destroyed. The defense still viewed this as a small case, only about Brian Kuhn. They hadn't caught on to Tim and Johnny's plan to frame this case as an indictment of the entire industry. Maybe they could just offer Brian some money in a pretrial settlement, and it would all go away. Or perhaps they could get some of Tim's damaging attacks thrown out before they even went to trial. They had recorded a lot of objections during depositions, and the judge could rule to keep that damaging testimony out of court. And no matter how hard Tim and Johnny planned and prepared, they know better than anyone that juries are unpredictable. Even though the focus groups indicated that this was a very strong case, people who thought addiction was the addict's fault could get on the jury and vote against Brian. Or they just might believe Dr. Walden tried his best and Brian wasn't really hurt that much. Dr. Gorino did clearly say that Dr. Walden achieved his treatment goals. And maybe Brian's marriage was on the rocks anyway. It had been three years since Brian and Michelle Kuhn walked into the Simon Law Firm. Trial was just four weeks away. We'll take you into the courtroom for jury selection and the start of the trial with Tim and Johnny's witnesses on the stand in the next episode of Results Don't Lie. Results Don't Lie is a true story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.